Thing from 1 Peter 1 to 9, you can find it on the Church Bibles on page 1217. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting at verse 8. We should be reminded that as we are looking this up, is blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. So let's claim our blessing as we look at God's word. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Oh, welcome. I need a large print Bible. I've forgotten my glasses. I was looking at the time. It means no, nothing at all to you, but don't worry. I have time. We have all eternity, it seems, from our reading this morning. Uh, that's good. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this word, this prophecy given to John in a tough place, to a church in a tough place, but asking them to just fling open the curtain that they may get a glimpse of the eternal Christ, the Lamb upon the throne, the one who is seated in all authority, who is sovereign. Lord, as we open your word, would you open our hearts and minds to see you this morning as glorious, as bright as the sun. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was writing this sermon, the phone rang. It's really irritating, actually. I did this sermon at home. I sometimes do it here in church, but I was at home thinking, well, I'll just have space. I won't get any interruptions. No one coming to the cafe, you know, saying, oh, hi, Simon, nice to see you. So I thought, oh, great, I've set this time to be faithful to this sermon because it is about faithfulness in a way. So I faithfully set time aside. So in the end, I thought, well, I must remain faithful. I must remain true. So I will let the answer machine help me in achieving my goal and just let the answer phone click in and I'll go back and find out later. But the phone then rang again. And I thought, no, I must remain faithful to this sermon. Then it rang again. And I decided then, well, this could be urgent, so I need to go and pick it up. And as I picked up the phone, there was a familiar voice, but a voice from the past, not anyone here, who needed to talk. And they needed to talk because they'd lost their way. They were quite disorientated in their faith. And they were seeking to hold on to Christ in an area of their life that they were struggling with. And this person needed to know at that time that God knew them and that God was with them. And somehow, God had put it in this person's mind to phone me, of all people, when he knew I was preparing a sermon. And sometimes there's a mystery in God that you don't quite understand. Yet the sermon at that time took flesh as the call went on. Because I returned back to the sermon an hour later and I read the words, I know, I know. And this is something that struck me as a Christian when I first became a Christian in the middle of the Yorkshire Dales under a starry sky, as you all know, you've heard this before, when I was about 14, going up to Scargill House, that God knew me. God knew me. Out of all creation, God knew me. And yet what is also true here is that this person was being disturbed because they were seeking to follow Christ. That's what disturbed them. If they didn't follow Christ, it wouldn't make no difference to them. But the Holy Spirit had disturbed them in order to bring them back to faith in Christ. And this linked in for me in the sermon too, that if we follow Christ, there are times that we are going to find ourselves disturbed. And sometimes, like with this person yesterday, those times can be crushing upon us and tough. And it's come to me actually so many times this week. I sat and read Psalm 139 with somebody. Lord, you search me and you know me. You know when I rise and when I sit. The God who once again knows us and your knowledge of me is too wonderful for me, the psalmist says. Reading Jeremiah to somebody else, for I know the plans I have for you. There are Snow Hill plans that are coming forward, we pray. But there's a question mark over the kind of activities that we can do in the building. 
And because the building isn't consecrated, it's not set apart for holy purposes as here is. Yet Snow Hill, our Snow Hill, is led by people who follow Christ. And therefore it's important at this time that we hold on to Christ and remain faithful to him when we could be asked to go another way. All this happening this week here in Bath, not in Smyrna, but here in Bath. And so I want you to know that this letter to the church at Smyrna has been encouraging to me this week as your spiritual leader. And I hope it will be to you today and in the following week, because I'm going to ask you just to read these verses throughout the week. Each time we, re- we do a church, read that sometime during the week. And so we move, as we discover today, from Ephesus to Smyrna, one of the seven churches in northwest Turkey, and we're seeing that the message written all those years ago in a different culture, in a different time, to a different language, is absolutely up to date for us in Bath. And possibly, as we heard read from Revelation by Les, verses 8 to 11, you're wondering, how on earth can that be relevant to us today? All of this talk of poverty, martyrdom, suffering. It all seems a little bit remote from us here in Bath. We know that Christians go through tough times, and there are some people here today who are going through a particularly tough time, not least Margaret Twos. But for many of us, life isn't really all that bad. Some people have been to Kent this week, had a lovely time, just carried away, food put in front of them, visiting gardens and castles. I mean, the world is a wonderful place. So what relevance can this possibly have to us today? And for a start, and soberly, as we've heard from David and Olivia this morning, there may be some here now who will be called to go to different countries in the future. It could be you. It happened to David in his church in March 1996. He was called to leave where he was, which I think it was Bournemouth, somewhere in that way, or, yeah, Bournemouth. Lovely place, Bournemouth. Who would leave Bournemouth? To go to Chengdu. Chengdu? Is that right? Chengdu. I'm trying to get the language here. Peter, Chengdu. Chengdu. Yeah, he's nodding. Oh, <laughs> good. Who would do that? He knew God was calling him, though, and calling him to a place where standing for Christ could be dangerous. More dangerous than it is here in the UK, particularly in Bournemouth, though it's getting tougher. And you will need to be prepared for what you're going to face. And so on this day in September, when Simon says, God knows, that may be important to you when you find yourself somewhere else, because God has called you to be somewhere else. And it does happen. It does happen. And Jesus in this message makes it very clear that some will face serious persecution. We know of our brothers and sisters in northern Iraq. We know of the struggles and battles that are going on in China with the schools, with other things. We read of Simon Gillibo, a man of great faith, lying in a ditch with a woman on top of him, saying to her, do you know your eternal salvation? Do you know Jesus Christ before we die? Because that's what the situation was in Africa where he was. He was lying in a ditch with rebels who were going to shoot them and kill them. Mercifully, they didn't. But even at that point, when he could have feared for his own life, he's seeking to bring another life into the kingdom of God because he knows the throne of God is real. And he knows one day we're going to be in the eternal presence of God. And does this lady lying on top of me know this at this deepest, darkest time of her life? And into that, he brought light and he brought hope because he was faithful to Christ. 
But we see what Jesus says in verse 10. He calls the Smyrna church to be faithful, as Les read, even to the point of death. So that may be someone here today. We simply don't know. But God does, because God knows. But there are other things we can face that are not as worse as death. If there is one truth I'd like us to see this morning, it's this. Unless you are faithful in the small tests, we will not be faithful in the bigger tests to come. And God calls us to be faithful where we are, now, in your situation, in your street, in your place of work, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family who do not know Christ. He calls us to be faithful, to stand for him, even if that cost is not to be measured in giving our very lives to him. And that's a lesson that every one of us who profess this morning faith in Jesus Christ needs to grasp. Are we being faithful? And Jesus demands faithfulness to him today, that we are to stand firm and we are to be strong. Unless we are willing to be faithful today, in the chances of being faithful tomorrow or the week after or the years ahead are going to be very difficult. It is a day by day, it is a step by step, it is a moment by moment call to remain faithful wherever you find yourself. So if last week we were learning with Esther beautifully that we can be committed but cold, our hearts can be cold. In the letter to Ephesus, we're learning today we can be faithful but also fearful. We can be faithful but also fearful because we're human. And let's listen as those who would have received this letter would have listened. They were in Smyrna. Smyrna was a resurrected city itself. It was a city that was rebuilt on the coast after the destruction of the original city in 600 BC. It was one of Rome's oldest allies, and Smyrna claimed the title of first city in Asia. It had a temple dedicated to the godhead of Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, a stadium. It had culture. It had libraries. It was very much like Bath, it had theatres and different people living together and including a large number of Jews that will come on to later. And Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna three encouragements and three encouragements for us in Bath. And the first is the intimate knowledge of Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. He knows what it is costing his people in Smyrna to be faithful. And that is encouraging. That is encouraging, particularly if we're dealing with people who are really quite struggling. Verse 8, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. Jesus knows. In every letter, every time he says, I know. And it's very important. And his knowledge is slightly different to that of the church in Ephesus. Jesus' knowledge was both good and bad things happening in Ephesus. And that led to them being challenged. Rediscover your first love, as Esther spoke so powerfully of last week. And many came forward seeking to rekindle that love of Christ that would then flow out into their lives, into the world. But here in Smyrna, Jesus' knowledge leads to encouragement in the midst of trials, in the midst of hard things going on. 
And it seems that this church is not doing anything wrong. It seems quite remarkable in many ways. But what they need is encouragement. And Jesus' knowledge, Jesus knowing them in their situation, where they are, gives them encouragement. Encouragement from the risen Christ, the one who has experienced the worst that life could do to him. He had died in the agony of the cross, rejected, despised. And no no matter what happened to the Christians in Smyrna, Jesus Christ had been through it. He had been to the worst of life too. This is the incarnational God, the God in flesh that we worship, not some distant deity, one who came among us, who pitched his tent in the neighborhood. And so Jesus is saying he knows what life is like at its worst, and he's experienced death. Yet he has conquered the worst that life can do. He rose again from the dead. He is alive He is the first and he is the last. He is the living one and he is seated upon the throne. When you go through tough times, because there will be tough times in Bath, what are you tempted to think? Are you tempted to think, I'm alone? Are you tempted to believe that no one really understands? No one really knows what it's like. No one understands the different things that I'm going through. And some people here this morning, some people have a real internal struggle going on that we can't see because you all look really lovely. But inside there can be real turmoil going on. It may be because there's a constant battle of temptation. One particular thing that has its hold on you that you know and you struggle with. For others, it's a deep worry. Some people are deeply anxious, deeply anxious at the moment about what's going on in the world and the powerlessness that people can feel, the powerlessness that people can feel when their bodies take over and there's nothing that seemingly medicine can do. There is a deep worry, there is a deep anxiety ripping people apart. We may have told someone about this. They may be with us, but they may not really understand what we're going through. Or it may be, as I spoke to somebody this week, who's experienced a really painful bereavement. And there's nothing except pain, real pain. or in the breakdown of a relationship that can be very hard to deal with. And Jesus says to each one of us in our personal pain, our personal difficulty here in Bath, not in Smyrna, I know. I know you. I know your afflictions. Jesus knows. And he says these words from the cross. I know. I know. And does it encourage you that God who created the heavens and the earth, who's seated on the throne in heaven, knows? Encourages me. 
He sees the very depths into your soul. He knows where you are. He knows where you live. He's speaking to the people in Smyrna. And he knows you. What is it about the Smyrnan church he knows? He knows of their poverty, verse 9. And as we heard earlier, Smyrna was a very well-to-do city. It was on the up. So how on earth could you be poor in such a place as this? How could you be poor in Bath, for some people would think? As well as being prosperous, the Smyrnans were politically astute. And there was a huge temple to the Roman emperor, Tiberius. And emperor worship was one of the things that you had to do. You had to bow down to him and worship him. And to compound matters for Christians living in Smyrna, a lot of trades had guilds. They were like trade unions today. The bakery guild, the sword makers guild. And if you wanted success in your business, you had to be part of these guilds. You would not get your trade or protection otherwise. And the flip side is that all these guilds pledged devotion to the emperor and they worshipped him whenever they met. They worshipped the emperor. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you are a Christian trader? Do you opt into those trade guilds and compromise your faith by bowing down to the emperor? Do you opt out and risk persecution from other people in Smyrna? Do you risk financial ruin leading to hardship? These are important questions for us today in relation to Snow Hill, in relation to how you may run your business or the business that you are in and what people are asking you to do just to make sure the results are all right in the end, just to make sure the numbers balance. If you could just do this, And if you weren't part of a guild, there was no trade. So it was a real cost for Smyrna Christians to put their faith in Christ, ahead of the emperor. It was a growing economic city, a bit like Bath. But the Christians were on the margins because they remained faithful to Christ who knew them, who knew their needs. He knows, too, the persecution that they are facing. I know your afflictions, he says. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews, and they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. So the church in Smyrna is under increasing pressure from the Jews in the city, brothers and sisters who they would have known. Perhaps the Jews were complaining about them to, the, to authorities, and we read a lot about this in the Acts of the Apostles. And Jesus says these slanderous Jews were actually tools of Satan against God's church. It's strong language being used in this revelation given by Jesus to John through the angel. There's no mincing words here, is there? There are people who are against, as we're hearing in China, against the church of God. And this is the bigger picture which we hold before us in Revelation. The big picture the major theme, because we remember Jesus is drawing back the curtain on reality. He's revealing to us in Revelation what is really going on. And evil is at work in the world. And as world leaders have condemned and commented on, as a reason to be at war, this nation is now at war with IS, the Islamic State. And Satan is at war with God's church. Satan wants to destroy God's church upon the earth. So we see Christians in poverty and being persecuted, not just in Smyrna, but now today, because they're remaining faithful to Christ, who knows them.
But what it reveals too is that there are two ways to live, and the Bible seems to make that clear, especially in Revelation. There is God's way that is eternal. There is also Satan's way. And what you think of God's people and what you think of them is a way of revealing which actual side you're on. It's part of what is going on here. There is a church seeking to grow with poverty and persecution who are trying to remain faithful to Christ and there is a synagogue of Jews meeting who are slandering them and making life very difficult for them. We live in an increased secularized society where the church is being further and further marginalized. Will we stand? Will we remain faithful, showing the values of Christ? And so here is this church suffering from poverty and persecution. But there's another thing in verse 9. They might be materially poor. They may be persecuted. But drawing back the curtain on what is truth is that they are spiritually rich. They are spiritually rich. And if we go back to Smyrna today and take a tour there, there were all these lovely houses, some with pools, some with many flashy camels outside. And you'd be tempted to think, these are the rich ones in the towns. These are the ones with the prestige and the power. These are the ones who've made it. The ones with 10 camels outside their house. The ones with the BMW cam camels or the Mercedes camels. No, Jesus says. You see those despised, minority crushed Christians that you hate and that you persecute? They are the rich ones. And they have a friend in very high places. And it's vital as we open revelation in our home groups, as we open revelations in our Bibles, on our iPads, on our phones, wherever that we understand our spiritual standing before our earthly standing, that we are in Christ, in Bath. We are in the kingdom of God, in Bath. And you and I can feel weak and vulnerable in this world compared to others. We can feel despised even. I remember a time in the hotel world where I was singled out as a Christian. I was in the middle of a semicircle and the man who was leading the seminar and training said, you're a Christian. And everybody went, oh. And from that point on, I was known as the Christian. Interesting. Is that happening for you? But as I sat there, marginalized, despised, I was richer, because I knew Christ. You all, you have all the blessings because we are in Christ. We are in God's family. And Henry Nouwen in his beautiful book, which I've forgotten to bring, says, you are not what the world makes you, but you are children of God. The world is trying to make something of everyone today. Identity is such a big thing. George Clooney's got married in Venice, very secret, very quiet, but all the celebrities are there. We're all trying to get cameras of them, people with boats looking at them. The image that they have, these are the prestige ones. These are the ones with 10 camels almost, you see. And we all think, oh, we must be like that. I pray that George Clooney knows Christ, for if he does, he will be truly rich. For you are not what the world makes you, Christians in Smyrna, Christians in Bath, but you are children of God. Beautiful. This is why asking people to come to Alpha is so important, yet so hard. 
because people seem rich. And in relation to most of the world's population, even if you're poor here in Bath, you are rich, really rich. But are we prepared in this place of Bath to really allow people the opportunity to see the truth of how poor they are without knowing Christ? Who is it that God will ask you to pray for? To bring, we pray, into the reality of Christ. Jesus says, I know what you're facing. I know what you're facing. And the second encouragement is this. They get a bit shorter now, don't worry. Lunch is coming. The second encouragement, the first one, being the fact that Jesus knows you. The second is, he is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He is in authority. It may not seem at times that things are in control, but he is the one who finally, all things are in authority under him. And it's revealed here in two ways in this letter. Firstly, Jesus had the sovereign power to defeat death. That's quite a powerful thing. Verse 8. Jesus is Lord over the church in Smyrna and in all the churches, and he's asking them to suffer in his name. But who is the Lord who is asking this of them? It is the one who rose from the dead, the one who is the first and the last. There, right from the start, he will be there at the end, and he is there for all eternity. And the faithful in Smyrna know the living God, the God of power, the God who is risen from the dead. And Jesus is one who is an authority. So that what is the worst someone can do to you? The worst they can do is to take your life. But if you know that you worship the one who has defeated death, what is there to fear? I remember being at school, secondary school, comprehensive in Sheffield, Abbeydale Grange, and watching a most horrific film of where Christians were being rolled up in mats. I don't know if anybody else saw this film. It's part of their RE lesson in the 70s. And the Christians were rolled up in mats, and then they were flung off a cliff. So the mat was unrolled of a drop of hundreds and hundreds of feet, and obviously died, simply because they wouldn't not profess Christ. This is to a 14, 15-year-old in Sheffield who's just become a Christian. And it can seem so distant, you see. Would I be faithful? Was my big question. Would I be faithful? He is the first and the last. He has the power to defeat what evil can do to people in destroying their bodies, but not their eternal souls. Death, where is your sting, Paul writes. And the second way in which he reveals his sovereignty is over the, the power he has to restrain Satan, to restrain Satan in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Things are going to get worse. That's encouraging, isn't it, to the Christians in Smyrna? Things are not going to get better, actually. They're going to get worse. Some of you in this church that I'm writing to, you're going to go to prison, 
And for prison, that meant that they were probably going to be led out to die. And the devil does this. The devil opposes God's people. And his hatred of God is taken out on the people of God. You and me, that is. And so does this mean that Satan has complete freedom to do what he wants with us? No. This persecution will come. But it will last for 10 days. Now, I don't think, as David Braithwell was saying, these numbers are definitely literal. They are symbolic. It means it will come to an end. It's not going to be forever. And it's a clear reference to Daniel, actually. Daniel's uncompromising stand in hostile Babylon for 10 days in chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. He remains faithful to God in a hostile environment. And it's for 10 days. So who is in charge? Is it Satan or is it Jesus? It is Jesus because he has the power to limit Satan. And as David said, he is on a short leash. He may seem to be in control and power, but Jesus is restraining him. But why doesn't Jesus just step in and do something to save his suffering people? Why doesn't he do that? And at times he does, and we see miracles. We see his sovereign power released. But at times we don't. And I believe it's to do with John's gospel. I believe it's to do with the fact that Jesus says to the disciples who are gathered in the upper room that was locked, remember, for fear. These people are in fear. I'd be pretty afraid in Smyrna hearing this. And Jesus says, as the Father sends me, so I am sending you. As the Father sends me, so I am sending you. Not only are we sent out as people of the word into the world, but the manner of our sending is also to be like his, to be like Jesus. Because then he showed them his wounded hands and side. As the Father sends me, so I am sending you. I know, Jesus says with wounded hands and side. As the Father sends me, this is what happened to me. I'm sending you. Sharp intake of breath by the disciples. Mercifully, Jesus has breathed the Holy Spirit upon them, so they're breathing in the power that will help them live that out. Are you breathing in the power of the Spirit every day? If we are to be authentic in our witness to Christ, we will bear the marks of his passion, his sufferings, those endured by the church at Smyrna. And any we may experience as faithful Christians, says Newbegin, the price paid for a victorious challenge to the powers of evil. This is the price paid for a victorious challenge to the powers of evil. That's hard to say when you're being rolled off a mat over a cliff. There seems to be a testing time for Christians who follow Jesus Christ as Lord. It's going to be hard, it's saying here. It's not easy. It, it seems a time of refining, as Peter writes, where gold is refined and all the impurities come out and we're left with pure gold. Yet here, sovereign Lord Jesus promises to bring us through. For the Lamb is on the throne. He is in authority and he does reign. And what is the challenge of all this in verse 10? Be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. 
What we learn from the Christian church in Smyrna is about faithfulness. Whatever happens tomorrow, be faithful to Jesus. We are called to be faithful to Jesus. And when times are less pressurized, we need to know we are learning to be faithful, learning to be faithful to Jesus in the small things in our lives that when the bigger tests will come, we will stand firm and we will remain faithful. For Peter, at the Last Supper, when Jesus is with him, I will follow you to the ends of all the world, it almost seems. I will go to the cross with you. What does he do? He runs away and denies Jesus. Jesus knows us, you see. He knows how hard it is to be faithful. You can read all kinds of sorts of biographies of awe-inspiring saints who've gone before us, who've remained faithful to Christ in the most difficult of times. Not least Hudson Taylor, who founded OMF. Are you being faithful today? Are you being faithful? Am I being faithful in the place of work when asked to do something a bit dodgy to get the results? Faithful when out with mates who want to challenge your faithfulness to Christ? Times when the fire seems hottest, are you being faithful? Because that's what Jesus is asking. He's asking the church of Smyrna and he asks us, and we, he asks us to remember that he is the first and the last and has defeated death. He is faithful to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That is the power of his faithfulness to you. And so are we, in our response, being faithful to him. One final encouragement he gives the church and to us is the eternal promise of Jesus. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. There's a different picture of what eternity is like. Last week we had the tree of life in Ephesians. This we see it's a crown of life. It's not earned, but it is a pure gift from Jesus as we stand with him. And the believers we know in Smyrna were declared rich in the midst of economic suffering, for they had weighed up the alternatives and settled for a new life in Christ, had settled for the crown of life beyond the appalling second death. And the second death means hell here, and that means life without God, life out of God's presence. We have seen that they were not a reclusive community. They weren't hiding in the desert. They were townspeople like us, working hard in their daily business as they went around Smyrna. But they chose Christ. They chose Christ and they said yes. They said yes to the glimpse of eternity that had been given to them. How much they must have needed this letter. How much they must have needed and would need in the future because of those going to prison and to death. How much they needed to know the eternal reality of Christ who is seated on the throne. They chose Christ. They chose to see the living one. Him who is invisible. Hebrews 11 verse 27. They were not escapist. They were rooted in daily life, ablaze, on fire, with a passion for Christ, who was the living one, who had overcome death. And he was the one who made them who they were, not the world in which they were living. I meet a lot of death in my line of work. I have the great privilege of being with people when they take their final breath. Sometimes that is not easy. And sometimes it is the most beautiful experience, as was with Eric Payne, where I was singing, Great is thy faithfulness to him, and then read the account of the resurrection. And when I said the word Mary, when Jesus recognized Mary, so he went and was face to face with Christ, who is the living one. The marvelous Christians in Smyrna, marvelous because nothing is said against them, 
honored their own hunger for eternal life. They honored it by their loyalty, by their utter ruthless faithfulness to Christ, to the Lord of heaven. And finally, the church leadership led the way, not least in Bishop Polycarp, a man who lived in Smyrna, a man who died in 156 AD, a few years after this letter was written. And some people believe it may have been given to him, Bishop Polycarp, for the church. And during a period of persecution, Polycarp was taken away, taken away from the Christians, separated, just as John is on the island of Patmos. He was taken away and he was sentenced to death for refusing to worship the emperor. And the story of his final few hours and weeks. But what you get from the story is Polycarp's absolute confidence in Christ. His utter faithfulness to Christ. So when the officer said to him, what harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? Swear by the genius of Caesar. Swear and revile this Christ. Polycarp simply replied, as Eric Payne would have. For 86 years, I have been a servant of Jesus. He has done me no harm. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And Polycarp was taken to the stake on which he was to be burned. And as he stood there, refusing to be tied down he refused to be tied down. He prayed, O oh Lord God Almighty, I thank you. I thank you that you have given me this hour so that I might share with the martyrs the cup of your Christ, looking forward to the resurrection to eternal life. And may I today be received among them before you as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you, the God who does not lie, has prepared for me beforehand. Some of us will not experience what Polycarp experienced. But Jesus says to us in Bath, I'm not calling you to a comfortable life. I'm calling you to be faithful. And there's a clue in Polycarp's story in how to be faithful. And the clue is this. For 86 years, I have served Jesus Christ. So what happened when he was tested 18? Was he faithful? What happened when he was tested at 25? Was he faithful then? What happened when he was tested at that midlife crisis moment at 40? That's 50 now. Did he want to leave all no. At 65, the pattern of faithfulness to Christ built up over many, many years, and we are so fortunate to have faithful saints of Christ here in Walcott who are still journeying with Christ, who still profess him as Lord. We thank you. We honor you. We bless you. There are those who are going out to the far corners of the earth, seeking to be faithful to Christ and to make him known. But these years of faithfulness that built up for him 
Help prepare him for the time of great overwhelming, even unto death. Faithfulness to Jesus begins today. He who has an ear, we will have ears. Let him hear. We, some of us, have hearing aids. Let us hear, not what Simon is saying, but what the Spirit of God is saying about being faithful to Christ who knows you, who is sovereign, and who's prepared an eternity for you to spend with him where you will see him face to face, the living one. It's late. We're going to do one final thing as we prepare to go. On you, on your chairs, you may be sitting on them, a little flame. There's a lovely passage in Revelation that David Bracewell told us about where God says in all the hubbub that's going on in Revelation in heaven of the praise to the Lamb upon the throne, the whole of creation is heard. God says, let's be quiet a moment. Actually, the moment is half an hour. And let us hear the prayers, the prayers of the people of God on earth. Let them rise up. And then we're going to put them, God says, these prayers into a bowl. And then I will turn the bowl over and throw it onto the earth. And the prayers will be like fire, fire going into these situations that the people on earth are praying for. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are in a tough place, be it because they're persecuted, be it because they're afflicted and in, or in poverty, be it because they're professing Christ and may lose their life. It may be that you know somebody. It may be that you know yourself going through a hard time. Write their name. Write the country on your flame. And if you can't come out or don't feel able to, give it to somebody else who can and come and place it in the bowl. And that's our prayers this morning. Someone will say, we didn't pray today. This is the prayer. This is the moment to pray where God hears the prayers of his people for his people on earth. And we bring them to the God who says, I know. The person or the place you put on your piece of paper seems a strange thing. Wipe away the strangeness with the knowledge that God knows. God knows that person. God knows that place. As you bring it forward with that knowledge that God knows, you come to the throne and you see that God is sovereign. And he is the one in authority. Not what might be overwhelming this person at the moment. He finally is an authority where we are told all shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. So until we wait for that time, bring your prayer. Knowing that he is the one who is sovereign and is on the throne. If we can have the lamb and the lion, that'd be great. For he is powerful, but he is also compassionate, for he is the lamb, the wounded one. Who knows? But also, one day, you will make your way, as saints are at the moment, to the throne of God, and you will see Jesus face to face. Throughout this week, I've been singing the song in my head, mercifully for those around me. Endless hallelujah. When I stand before your throne, dressed in glory, not my own. What a day that will be. So just be aware this week as you move around Bath or wherever you go, back to China eventually, 
God calls you to be faithful because he knows, because he's sovereign, and because there is eternity with him. Amen.